and welcome to the Writers Co-op. This is Jenny. And this is Wudan. Hey, Wudan. Hey, Jenny. <laughs> How are you doing? You know, I'm good. I'm really excited for summer and I'm actually reining in any desire that I have to push hard at my work schedule, which is sort of counterintuitive. But, you know, I'm starting my training to become a certified professional coach this summer and I've been working about 20 hours each week. So honestly, it's nice. I have to sort of tell myself like this is a really good speed. It's actually a sustainable speed. Lots of outdoor time, you know, lots of time with my kids. So Oregon in the spring and summer is really glorious. It's been nice. How about you? I'm okay. Things are going. I think I've said this on a few platforms, but I don't think I've said that here yet. About a month and some change ago, I started working with an executive coach of my own. Ooh, I love that. That sounds really (laughs) cool. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah. I mean, just like therapists need their own therapists, coaches also need their own coaches. I was noticing some growing pains in me managing two businesses. So that's my own freelance writing business and this, the Writers Co-op. And I realized I have much more than I can actually take on. And so I called in for some help. I mean, I think this is super smart. People are always asking us how we're doing all of this, like managing the Writers Co-op, managing our own businesses. And the answer is that it is sometimes not great. So how is the coaching going for you? It's been illuminating so far and it's also been really fun. I'm trying all sorts of things to make my business more streamlined and simplified in a way that I didn't think it really could be. So I really have enjoyed that. Yeah. What have you tried so far? One of the main things that was burning me out was being asked to speak on stuff (laughs) all the time, fact checking, freelancing, you know, uh, other things I've reported on. So previously, I was like, I have a quota for three hours of unpaid stuff every month. And that was reserved for speaking gigs if that client didn't have a budget, right? And then I realized that being on those speaking events is a lot of energy out. And I really get literally nothing back if I do it for free. So I've eliminated that. I always say that even if I were at a conference and I had to talk for free, but the conference was covered for me, that at least I could draw energy from other people. And that's missing in a lot of these virtual settings. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that I just stopped making myself available for Friday meetings. I want less time talking. (laughs) It not only makes me thirsty, I'm literally chugging a Nalgene of water right now, but it also takes way too much energy. I need more time for me to do my own work. Yeah, I love this. I have similarly stopped taking meetings on Wednesday and designated it as a day to work on projects, to work on writing. And it is revolutionary to not have to show up for anyone. Mm -hmm. I'm so much more productive. I think it is huge. We've been accountable to a lot of people for the past year. So I love that you're scaling back on this. You're going to have to keep us updated on this for sure and on some of the other experiments. But let's see, before we jump into the show and who you talked with today and all of those things, we have a plug for our listeners, right, Wudan? Yes, we do. So listeners of this podcast may also enjoy Is This Working? Now in its fifth season, Is This Working? is the podcast where two best friends have honest conversations about money, careers, and success. Anna Kodria-Ratto and Tiffany Philippou seek to question everything we've ever been taught about work because they believe the quality of our lives is as strong as the quality of our work. The two are often joined by guest experts, so whether it's topics on productivity, procrastination, burnout, or asking for more money, Is This Working has got you covered. A better working life is coming your way. You can find Is This Working wherever you podcast. Mm, This is such a good show. I listen 
almost every every week to every episode. I really love the first episode of their new season where they talk about being known as a professional freelancer who gives advice mm-hmm. and then still feeling like you don't have it figured out. Mm-hmm. And that resonated <laughs> with me so very much. I have also been recommending Anna's new book, which is called You're the Business to Everyone. It is all about, you know, the things we love, the business of freelancing. So, Dan, on that note, who is on our show this week? Yes. This week, I spoke with a freelance writer who wanted us to keep herself anonymous, which we granted. She is a writer based in the Deep South who's been freelancing on and off for about two decades and also does some admin work on the side. Here is that conversation. Hi, and welcome to the Writers Co-op. Thank you. I'm excited to be on here. I heard this is a very popular cast, so I'm pretty I'm pretty pumped. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, why don't we jump right into it? Tell me about your business. What kind of services do you offer and who do your clients tend to be? Sure. So I've been doing this for about 12 years total, but I've been doing it specifically since 2012 as a primary source of income. So about nine years. And when I started, I started out doing a lot of writing work, but also virtual assistants or so things like checking people's emails, doing social media management, that sort of thing, and writing mostly for regional magazines here in my area. And that was it. And so it kind of grew a little bit from there. I started writing for a trade magazine, which was great. And I've been able to get published many, many times in the last nine years or so. And most of what it is is nonfiction, usually interviews or profiles of folks, things like that. So I've tried to move away from VA stuff now. I kind of want to focus in specifically on just writing. That's what I'm best at. So that's what I've been doing for the last, I'd say, year or so specifically. I haven't been doing any kind of admin work. So it sounds like you're looking to focus mostly on writing and phasing out the virtual assistant work. Although it sounds like maybe that can be something you could fall back on if you needed to. It's possible. Yeah. And actually, I'm currently doing some junior QA work for a company. So that's where actually where most, most of my income comes from is from them. I work a few hours with them a week. And it's been really interesting. So now I'm kind of like thinking, Maybe if I can't become a QA full time, maybe I should start writing more about tech. So now I'm <laughs> now I'm writing for more techie magazines and things like that. And hopefully my knowledge will, you know, kind of inform me on how to pitch folks nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. So my next question for you is uh, tell me about your current work schedule in terms of how many hours you work per week, how many days you take off a month, things like that. Sure. It is not as scheduled as it probably should be, but generally, (laughs) that's why we're here. (laughs) Generally, um, I'll do the QA work. I'll be on call, essentially, for about five hours a day, Tuesday through Friday. And usually Monday is my open day, usually for volunteer work, but also for writing. And so what I should be doing is in the morning doing my writing, but I have not been doing that. I've been sleeping in. (laughs) So it's supposed to be like, you know, 10 to 12 writing every day. Um, and it has not been that. Usually it's now like after six on weekends, that sort of thing. <laughs> but my my idea, what I've been striving towards is Monday through Friday, essentially like 10 to five. So kind of a, a normal-ish schedule. Got it. So that maths out to about a 35-hour work week. Yes. Okay. How do you feel bandwidth-wise with the work that you have right now? Do you feel like you have the capacity for more? Where do you land on that scale? I think physically I have the capacity for, but mentally I do not. Obviously, 
I'm on call only a few hours a day. Typically, I only get called in for a couple of tickets, so maybe two or three hours a week at the most, maybe up to five hours a week. So I have all of this time. So I literally do have the time to fit more in. It's that mentally I don't have the bandwidth currently. I generally end up sleeping a lot <laughs> most of most of the day, and then if not, then I'm working or, you know, just relaxing because I'm trying to, you know, stay in between this nine to five kind of schedule, but it's been really hard. And so I'm, I'm thinking maybe I have to either adjust that or just try to get into a better brain space so that I can get up earlier. I did it today. I actually wasn't too bad. So I feel like I can do it on a regular basis, but it's been very interesting trying to get it to be very, I should say, like consistent. It's been very inconsistent lately. I want to say, first of all, that sleeping in is good self-care. <laughs> yeah, I do like it. <laughs> yeah, I feel amazing every time I get an extra two hours and not counting the time that I spend answering emails on my phone while I'm horizontal in bed. Right, exactly. That doesn't count. And the other thing I wanted to say up front is that it's pretty challenging in my experience when a client books you for a certain period of time, as your QA client seems to do, and then you're not actually actively working those entire hours, right? So it's really hard in my experience, again, to do small tasks here and there because there's something to be said about being interrupted. Right. Yes. And that's such a good point because I, I think my hope was when I'm not working for QA stuff, I'm doing writing. But I tend to just be kind of looking at my phone, maybe I'll watch TV, maybe I'll do some reading, but not actual, you know, brain power type work. Yeah, exactly. So for the purposes of this call, do you want to go ahead and tell me two or three things that you're hoping that we can discuss during this meeting? Sure. I know you can't give me more brain space, but I would <laughs> like to, <laughs> that's not a magical power that you have. I would like to just maybe learn some tips on how to mentally adjust so that I can work more things in. I don't usually use an alarm usually, which is kind of why I end up sleeping in a lot. I try to avoid alarms, but I really think I need to push myself to do at least extra two hours a day for writing and writing stuff. My big goal is to start including that 10 to 12 into my daily schedule. Sure. What else is there? There's also, well, I shouldn't say it's a, a problem so much, but I've gathered a lot of leads from LinkedIn over the past couple of weeks. I've actually had help with doing that. And I'm also in a mastermind group, and I've been behind in that also. So I really need to focus, if I'm not doing actual writing projects, to focus my time on those leads and my mastermind group. When you say leads, what does that actually mean? Essentially, I took about 100 different writing jobs in LinkedIn and usually I try to find the ones that are kind of past tense or the older ones. And I have the information of the CEO and the company and the website just to maybe send a message about, you know, what their capacity is now for writers or if they're still looking for writers, that sort of thing. Got it. Okay. So potential clients, you mean, and scouting them out yes. and doing discovery calls and all that good stuff. Yes. I see. In addition to the QA work, what else constitutes your freelance income right now? That's pretty much it. It's pretty much writing and I haven't been writing as frequently as I should, as I mentioned, writing and QA stuff. So I've written for magazines most recently. I'm still working on a couple of ideas for stories that I'm working on for TechCrunch and for Wired. And I'm in the final, I think, editing process of that. So I need to start pitching more ideas to them. So I'm kind of thinking about that too in the back of my mind for things to follow up with them on while I get those edited. But yeah, that's it. It's, it's pretty much QA stuff and usually writing. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the money dimension of your business a little. 
if you're comfortable sharing, how much are you making right now? Let's just say per month. And ideally, how much would you be making every month? I think right now, my biggest month was about $1,000, I believe. And a great majority of that is through keyweight work. Because the caveat with writing for publications like Wire and Tech Crunch is that they pay you not very regularly. They don't pay you in advance. So I expect to have some giant, you know, check in a couple of months, but it's hard to gauge that. So I think that's kind of the idea of being, you know, always marketing is that I can have a more balanced income if I keep focusing on different, you know, new clients versus just trying to rely on a couple of magazines here and there. Yeah, I completely agree with that assessment of finding other clients that are not journalism to bolster the ship and keep it steady. What about your ideal setup? How much would you be making every month? I think ideal setup, I'd be making probably about $3,000 a month. My big goal this year was 50K. That's like more than $3,000 a month. But just looking at what I used to make as a, a full-time person and then accounting for taxes and all that stuff, it'd be, it'd be good to have about 3K a month to live on. That would be fantastic. Yeah. So let's talk about this aspect first. And I think it ties into what we're saying in creating a little more brain space. I have a lot of conversations with coaching clients that run similar to this of needing to figure out income goals and how to figure out the best balance of work that pays the bills with scoping out new opportunities or working on projects that we really care about. That $1,000 a month right now, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but does it feel like you're working a lot to get that money? Where do you land on that scale? It's funny because it's not a lot. I make great money with the QA folks. So somewhere between, I think, $50, $60 an hour. So I'm not working very much to get that amount, which is nice. But I think mentally, it feels like that much. And it's funny, every time I, I finish a day, I look at my toggle and see, and I'm like, have I only been working for two hours? This feels like it's been a year. But yeah, usually I try to incorporate breaks, things like that. So I end up filling that space if I can. But yeah, it's not a lot of hours. I could be doing a lot more, really. <laughs> so that's that's kind of uh, my other thing is that I, my goal is to not work as many hours to make as much money. But I think right now I don't have that kind of luxury as far as wanting to save up for things. So I need to start, you know, putting out a few more dollars. You know, we have insurance that we have to pay for. It's very expensive and stuff like that. Just stuff to be able to feel like, okay, I'm not just doing bare bones stuff here. Although with a pandemic, we haven't been spending much money. So I have a nice little cushion from the past year or so. Yeah, absolutely. So the math puzzle I'm trying to figure out right now is you say that three to 4,000 would be ideal to help you with your income goals. And you're not working a full 35 hours a week, but you have capacity to do so. So when I do that math out, that will come to 140 hours total a month. I'm just going to do this math live for all of our listeners. Thank you. Yes, because I can't do math. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you have 140 working hours every month, and you want to make 4k. So if we math that out, it tells me that your rate should be at least $30 an hour. What that tells me actually, though, is that your $50 to $60 an hour is a good starting point. It sounds like you don't actually have to get rid of that QA client or make any adjustments to that. But I want you to 
because you're able to get that rate with them, I want you to make that your standard rate for everything else you take on. I would really like to do that. Yeah, my initial goal, because I've been writing for many, many years, is about $1 to $2 a word. And it's almost working out to be about that much. But for stories like with TechCrunch and Wire, they require a lot of interviewing, editing, transcribing. And so I think with that, I'm probably not making quite as much per hour as I should be for those. And I don't really get to decide on those particular, I mean, I can give them like an idea of what I would like to get, but they'll be like, okay, we're going to pay this much for this story. There's no negotiation as far as it goes with certain magazines. So that's one thing that is a bit of a barrier. So it would be definitely great to find at least one more client where I can say, this is my minimum rate and this is where I'm going to, to start out because this is where I need to make that 4K a month. Mm-hmm. Walk me through what happens when a publisher like TechCrunch or Wired tells me, oh, we'll pay you a dollar a word. How do you make the business decision of how much time you would be able to spend on that piece? I think that's probably where the problem lies. I usually end up doing a bit too much for too little time. Most of these stories I've done require I'd say a half dozen interviews, which takes time to obviously find the folks, get them to commit to a schedule, interview them, transcribe the notes, come up with a draft. And I'm on like a, you know, version three of a draft right now for for one company. So, I mean, it's a lot of time. I would like to not spend as many hours on it, but it really depends on the project. So what I would like to do is maybe not spend so much time sourcing and maybe look for stories that maybe will require one or two sources for those publications to kind of cut down on the time that it takes for me to finish these. And obviously, like I mentioned earlier from our conversation, I do have anxiety and depression. And so it does feel like I have less capacity than most people. And I think I'm trying to do the capacity of a 100% well person when I'm really like 70%. And a lot of it has to do with pandemic, obviously. The pandemic is throwing me off pretty much in every way. I mean, it's like that for everyone nowadays. And it's hard. It's hard to want to get things done when the world is on fire. I completely empathize. And I think realizing that your actual working hours may be less, but you need to make more, to me, is more of a justification to raise your rates. So when I say that, what is your initial like reaction to that? <laughs> well... My initial reaction is it won't work for those two clients, but because with some publications, it's a flat fee or you don't get to write the story at all. There's no wiggle room in that. I think it just depends on whatever the media publication's budget is. So if maybe a private company or a private client might be easier to do negotiations with for that now, I would not be able to do that. So what I need to do is either find another client that will negotiate or spend much less time working on more projects for the other two publications. So just so I can, I can, you know, say that it's worth the amount of effort and time put into something. Mm-hmm. Tell me the feeling that you get when you might have to give these clients up and look for publishers that would pay more. Oh, it's so sad. But at the same time, you know, you're a writer also. You don't marry your clients. You don't marry your stories. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> That's right. You don't, the idea is for you to write on other things for other publications. So it would be fine to drop them or to put them aside for other publications because once I make those bylines now, 
they can't take them away from me. So I can say I've been published in TechCrunch and Wired and then move on <laughs> without having to work with them ever again. Exactly. Some clients who, you know, can't exactly pay your bills and pay your rent can be a really important stepping stone for the next thing in your freelance career. And frankly, that's how I viewed a lot of publishers who I've written for that others would consider to be prestige clients. Exactly. Those are prestige clients. Yeah. So I think that's a point that's worth thinking about as you're rebuilding your freelance business so you can triple, quadruple your monthly income, right? One thing that I do when I get an assignment is, oh, somebody can only pay $1,000. Well, if my hourly rate is $100 an hour, I can't spend more than 10 hours on this. Is that feasible? If yes, continue. And if not, ditch and look somewhere else. Right. <laughs> Pitch it somewhere else. Yeah, it would be hard. I do like the folks that I work with, which, you know, it's sometimes really hard to find good editors. Mm -hmm, absolutely. You know, even if they don't pay as much, it's it's been fun working with them. So it would be tough to walk away, but at least if I do, I can probably spend more of my mind looking for other clients. And once I, you know, make good money, I can come back to them and say, hey, I got to the story, you know, I can take 500 for it because I'm already making money doing something else. So they won't have to go away forever. I'm not, you know, I'm employed to them. So exactly. And you said something fascinating earlier that Jenny and I have stressed on a previous episode of the Writers Co-op, which is look for a lower hanging fruit, right? You still have these relationships, you like those relationships. And so it's really a matter of making sure the scope of work is limited enough so that you can still meet your financial needs. Exactly. That's very true. And it's funny that I, I didn't think I would ever have prestige clients as low-hanging fruit, but they kind of are now, I guess, at this point. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I've been working for a little while now. So, How does it feel when we talk about that? Like, come up with a different way of working with these clients that's more on your own terms? It's hard because I know that means starting a new relationship with someone else. And I know that takes time and effort. And I don't know how to put this without sounding weird, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm a black woman and I'm working with black editors who understand me and who I think take me seriously, which isn't always something that happens when you're a black woman doing freelancing work for companies. They don't take you seriously. They don't return your calls or emails and they will pay you less. So it's kind of important for me to find, I think, some of these more black owned businesses that will pay me what I'm worth because I know it's difficult to get paid what you're worth nowadays when you're a brown woman. Yeah, I can relate as a person of color. You know, I've experienced blatant racism too from some clients and I just make the mental note of not to work for them. But <laughs> can you tell me of an example when that wasn't necessarily true that the publishers and editors you were working with were white or some other race and still treated you with respect? Because what I'm hearing from you is a bit of fear of getting out of this bubble yes, and reconciling it with the fact that this industry and the publishing, the media industry is predominantly white. So tell me about times where that wasn't necessarily true, that you found clients that broke this pattern. It definitely happened with a trade magazine that I worked with a few years ago. Unfortunately, they kind of ran out of budget to, to keep me going. I didn't have enough good story ideas to keep pitching them. But yeah, they were great. And I think they gave me a lot of confidence because I was doing a lot of work for them and they appreciated all of it and liked having my feedback. So it has happened. It's not a rarity, <laughs> but it's been rare for me lately because at the same time, what I've also been trying to do is find full-time work outside of the house. And so that's one thing I mentioned you know, in my vacation is that I really need to focus on making this work 
because a part of the reason why it's not working is because my husband wants me to make a certain amount and keep it at that amount, which is almost impossible when you're freelance. You can't say, okay, I'm guaranteed to make this amount of money this year and keep doing that for the rest of my life. So that's kind of where I think I can just straddling between, okay, maybe I should just go back to having a regular job with regular benefits and, you know, more stable pay versus just try to go all in on the freelancing thing. Because I've done it in the past. It hasn't been successful, but I've gotten a lot better over the years. So maybe different this time if I start pitching folks. But yeah, that's part of where the fear is, is that, well, you know, if I keep freelancing, will I ever, you know, crack that 50K that I would love to have? And if I do, would I be able to do it again the next year and the next year? That's my big fear is that I don't think I'd be able to do that. And so without that, I wouldn't be able to leave his family's house, which is where I'm living at right now. So that's it's a lot to kind of deal with. There's a lot of pressure, I feel like. Yeah, I'm hearing you. You said something about confidence. And I love that because a lot of freelancing is confidence. The belief that your work is worth more than it is currently being valued, for instance. And if I were coaching you regularly, I would assign two things. So one thing is we call a confidence log. It's just a fancy term for a spreadsheet where every time you broke out of your comfort zone or you negotiated something or did something that was scary in your business and you came out the other side where the publisher or the client met you at your negotiation, that's a win. Basically, this log proves your anxiety and your imposter brain wrong. And I think it's so important to show yourself, hold it up to yourself as a mirror, right? Of, I can do this. Oh, I like that. And I think the more and more we exercise that confidence muscle, the easier that breaking out of our shell becomes. Absolutely. And I, it's funny because I do that at the end of the year, but I never think about doing it during the year. <laughs> Uh (laughs) I think it's important to do in the present, though. Absolutely. Just as they happen, right? One thing I do is if I get nice feedback from an editor, I just throw it immediately into a folder in my inbox. I was going to say the other thing is to come up with a list of clients who are going to pay you more. So there are a few databases available online that tell people publicly what different outlets pay. It sounds like you're already doing a lot of discovery calls with new clients too. So who are the clients who can pay you not just 50 or 60, but double that, triple that, right? Because the more higher paid work you take on from non-journalistic clients, probably, that can help support the journalistic work that you might be hitting at 50 or $60 an hour. And overall, basically, I mean, money is kind of a game. I didn't grow up with this mentality for what it's worth. But say you want to make three or four K a month and you are working a hundred hours, which is twenty-five hours a week, if a client pays you more money, but you spend less time on it, that opens up space for other things. You can sleep in, you can do research on a story. It really alleviates that pressure. The other piece of homework I would say is make a spreadsheet of potential clients who can help you meet your income goals, who ideally pay more than who you're working with now. That's awesome. Now, where would I find that for non-journalistic clients to get their rates? What would you suggest I go to? That's a great question. So I would say a few things. One is to ask your network, so your colleagues who may work with non-journalism clients, what their experience has been like. People who are your colleagues, but also friends and who would be willing to help share these things. I also think it's fair to say that 
companies or institutions with big names. You can look up their net worth, probably also have a higher budget for writers, too, because they understand the value of content that is put up forth on their web page. And I think a lot of it will have to do with reaching out and doing a discovery call. But I think a lot of those clients are also going to be a lot more amenable if you go to them with rates that you want to be paid. So if somebody wants to explore the opportunity of working with you, you can say, my rate is $100 an hour. My rate for this is $150. Oh, you want a blog post that's 800 words? That's $1,000. So naming your fee for those clients can take you a really long way. And hey, if you tell somebody that a blog post is $1,000, you're a third or a quarter of the way to earning your monthly income. Yeah, I don't do that regularly. I probably should be doing that is finding those seven, eight figure budget companies (laughs) that are just throwing, you know, cash around to marketing folks. Yeah, absolutely. So I think building that list for yourself and figuring out what may be worth your time is a great place to start. Again, you're in essence also relaunching your freelance business in a way. You're looking for new clients to add on, possibly new services, possibly letting go of this QA work too, right? If I get something major, then yes, absolutely. I'd let it go. So the last thing I want to come back to since we're almost at time is the question that you had about creating more brain space in a day. Tell me the setup you have with that QA client right now. Are they only paying you based on the hours that you bill? That is right. Okay. But they're booking you for a certain amount of time a day. Yes. I have basically an open schedule to where between these hours, I can be pinged to take tickets. But yeah, they don't pay me until I start working on the ticket specifically. So it's not quite as many hours as it looks. Right. What do you think of that business setup? Does that work for you? It kind of works for me, but I think... Part of what it is is my own mindset. For weeks that I'm not sure if I'll be busy, I really need to just kind of put it aside and say, don't even think about that client because I'm not getting paid to think about them right now because I don't have any work for them. It's not as great as I would like for it to be. And so it's possible if I find another client, I would love to have those hours or have those days, you know, maybe say Monday, Tuesday and not, you know, Tuesday through Friday. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Or I can envision another situation where if they want you to be on the clock for five hours a day, all those five hours are billable, right? Because they are reserving your time. So what if I told you that the setup you have with them right now is unfair? How does that make you feel? I actually wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree now that I think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. How does that make you want to move forward with this client? That's a great question. I don't know. And that that's something I just had a meeting with the, the head of it. That might be something I need to address with her because she'll probably tell me, oh, wait, if that's what you're doing, then don't think about us, you know, those days and just come in during days when you want to work. So that might be something I have to tell her that I need to change is that I won't be available until certain days and I should have tickets on those days and that's it and not have a reserve day but have nothing going on. I think she would probably be more more open to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what I'm trying to say is, is there a way you can work with this client within the parameters that you want to work on the projects that they hire you for rather than them having more control over you because you're running a business and 
Ordinarily with retainer clients, for instance, there's the expectation that the freelancer is on the hook for, say, 20 hours a week. All 20 of those hours are billable. That is how we are figuring our availability and bandwidth into that schedule. So I think that's something worth thinking about. So the last thing I want to talk about is how to actually create more brain space. And I think this goes back to the point that I raised earlier about hours working and income goals. Why don't you tell me? (laughs) Is the 1,000 that you're earning every month enough to cover your bills for now? Oh, yeah. I don't really have very many because, you know, I don't spend as much money on gas because I don't really go many places. But that obviously that will change, you know, in the next months, few months, hopefully. Right. <laughs> so it sounds like if three or four thousand is your ideal goal, that having at least one thousand coming in reliably is a pretty safe space. How do you feel about that statement? I would agree, and I also would agree that I probably should be spending less time being on call <laughs> and just, you know, reserve couple days for these tickets and not try to spread them out over a course of a week. Mm -hmm. Totally. So again, if we were to meet regularly, I will I will send you this as homework, actually. What I would tell a normal coaching client is the amount that you need to live every single month is $1,000. How are you going to make that up? And once you have that 1000 it usually gives peace of mind, right? Because money, I think, is the premier stressor for a lot of freelancers. But once you lock down that stable, reliable income, you create mind space to have a few more hours to focus on other work. What I'm hearing from our conversation is if you need a thousand and your minimum hourly rate is $50, that's only 20 hours every month. And suddenly, oh my gosh, you have so much more control over your schedule because you have a hundred plus remaining hours to do more creative stuff. So how can we play within that? That's a great idea because that's about, you know, what I'm working now is only a few hours a month, but it does feel like more because I have committed those hours for those specific days. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Even a client booking your time takes up brain space, right? And even if you're not actively doing something, but they call you in, that's a task switch and there is energy required to switch between tasks. And, you know, that's why a lot of freelancers talking about batching similar tasks, like sending a bunch of emails or taking a bunch of calls. So that's a strategy to kind of mitigate how much brain switching that we have to do. And I think they'd be fine with that because most of the stuff that I work on generally isn't very urgent. They have a few emergency things going on, but not very frequently. So I think I'd be able to condense that into, you know, maybe a couple of days maybe work in a couple of more hours, but then have the rest of the week off. That'd be nice to work on other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So we are at time, but I just wanted to recap our conversation. And I think one of your big goals, again, if I were coaching you consistently, and if we were to meet another month or two out, would be to fill out that confidence log of times that you've proved yourself wrong. And I want you to make a spreadsheet, too, of clients who will be able to pay those rates, whether that's through your own research and discovery calls or your network and relationships with others in the media industry. The third is to come up with a new business plan, too, because it sounds like you might want to get rid of this QA work in lieu of other more stable, perhaps, work. 
And in that business plan, I think you'll be able to figure out exactly how much time a client may require every single month and then how much more time you will have for other creative projects because those two things are not mutually exclusive. Usually we want that stable client to give us the peace of mind so we can do creative things. That's so true. That's very true. Well, thank you for your honesty. And I hope this was helpful for you too. It really was. Certain things give me a different perspective that I wasn't really thinking about. So it was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I love that. Okay, well, I will talk to you soon. All right. Yay. I really wish that we had more time to dig in with these coaching sessions, Wudan. 30 minutes seems so short. Like both of us are used to having an hour with folks. Yeah, it is really challenging. I think our guest's story this week is one I hear pretty commonly. Somebody not trusting in their own self-worth, but they also want to break out of the status quo that they've set in their business. Right. And it's really hard, I think, to have it both ways, like to have your business in the place you want it to be and also to feel comfortable. I actually wonder if that's possible. It's never been possible for me. I think when you stretch yourself to improve your business, it is probably always terrifying. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of mindset work, I think. And, you know, I always recommend people the confidence log. Me too. The goal is basically to prove to yourself that you are capable, right? As writers, as journalists, we're really good at doing research. So we want you to research yourself. And, you know, you can't prevent yourself from being afraid, but you can provide your brain with evidence that says, I got this, right? I've done this before. It sort of shortens that moment of fear, if you will. Yeah, our brains are pretty mean to us. They tell us stories that are wrong, that don't serve us, that make us really question ourselves. And I think that's why I asked our guest how her preconceptions matched up with reality, right? Yeah, it was a great question. You know, recently I met with someone, uh, I was coaching someone, and they told me that they were lazy. And based on all the data I could see from their career, I was like, you are literally the opposite. You're actually extremely productive, right? But that was an old story. It was one that his brain repeated to him over and over again. And I think it was one from his childhood. And it actually wasn't true, right? But it was holding him back very much in taking the necessary steps to move forward in his career. So, you know, he thought of himself as lazy. So he would take these tiny actions that meant he wasn't getting much done, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And he was really, really lost in self-criticism about that laziness. So like you said, I find it really helpful to like gather this evidence. Sometimes I even assign people to write themselves a letter as if a trusted friend is writing to you about what they love about you. Like, what would they say? Would they say you're lazy? Probably not. And that exercise is really interesting because it can be really tough to speak kindly to yourself, but it's a lot easier when you think about someone else talking to you in that way, right? So all of that is to say this is like extremely hard and it's also why therapy is important because these old stories which come into play for money and business building and all of that, like like they are from our childhood, they're from our past and digging into those things can actually make a big difference in your ability to move forward, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. The other homework I assigned to our guests were our business planning worksheets <laughs> to redefine her rates and services. Are we assigning these to everyone? The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly the starting point. If you want something new, you're going to have new boundaries. 
And it's important to know what those are. I also assigned her to make a spreadsheet that tracks ideal clients. And I asked her to work through the confidence worksheet, of course. And I think about this as a trifecta of business focusing in a way. Acknowledging what's holding you back through business planning, reminding yourself that you're very capable via the confidence log, and knowing where you're going with those ideal clients. Yeah, I love this. It's all about focused energy. Mm Mm-hmm. Our Patreon members will get the stuff too. As you know, season three is funded by you, our listeners. If you haven't joined us already on Patreon, we hope you will. You get episodes two weeks early from everyone else, plus resources, access to a Slack channel, discounts galore, and more. Yeah, it's great stuff. And I think that is it for this week, but we will be back in two weeks with another guest. Until then, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, we do. Season three of The Writer's Co-op is made possible by you, our listeners. The season is hosted by me, Jenny Gritters, and my co-host, Wu Dan Yan. And the podcast would not be possible without the help of our producer, Jen Monier, and our editor, Susan Vallett. (laughs) 